Hello and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Today we are finally embarking on Tolstoy's giant masterpiece, What is Art? Messy and ugly as it may be, masterpiece indeed. People are still talking about this book and pouring over it. and We've got a lot to talk about here. Um, first off, a quick review. Uh, remember from last time, especially we uh, discussed quite a bit. Um, we talked about... Tolstoy's own sort of religious conversion, how he eventually repudiated his own novels, as we actually see in one of the footnotes here in What is Art, um, where he actually rejects Anna Karenina and all of his earlier work and instead kind of holds up uh, his two short stories, uh, God Sees the Truth But Waits and The Prisoner of the Caucasus, as like these two paradigmatic kind of, uh, kind of tales and, you know, doing what moral art is supposed to do. Um, but we also talked about his system as it appears in his essay on art, how there are three components to good art as Tolstoy sees it. Um, specifically, we have the moral, the, the topic of some significance or importance, um, the craft, the beauty of the work in some sense, um, how well it is put together, how well it communicates its ideas, how well it is, as he puts it here in the text, infectious. Um, and also the sincerity, the third dimension, which, you know, we talked about a little bit and questioned a little bit, but ultimately it seems really important to Tolstoy, so we should definitely be talking about it and, and be mindful of it here. Um, now, it's worth noting that starting in on what is art, you might very well expect to see a lot of the stuff that he's already talked about elsewhere sort of manifest over the course of the text. Um, we would expect something as systematic as on art, but you'll notice that it isn't forthcoming. Um, what is art is actually way less systematic and organized than many of his thoughts that we've been kicking around for the last couple of, of lectures. Um, in fact, it is much more experiential, much more informal, and kind of just free-floating in its connections between ideas, which makes it kind of hard to talk about. Um, on the one hand, he does have some very clear ideas that I do definitely want to get into and discuss, and I definitely do want to pour over the nuances of what he's saying here, where he does bother to get specific and where he does kind of isolate um, examples or specific ideas that, um, that like illuminate what he's trying to say. Um, but at the same time, I want to kind of recognize overall that Tolstoy here in what is art is less philosophical than sort of essayist here. Um, it, it's kind of hard to, to pin down, but, you know, as much as he does have a lot of things to say and as much as he does have a lot of specific things to say, he's not going to give us the, the numbered lists that we saw in On Art. He's not trying to sort of deconstruct art and figure out how it works, what the components are. He is more polemical here. Um, he is convinced of his rightness and trying to communicate that rightness to us. Um, and he's not sort of experimenting with the different ways that art can communicate these things or the different components of what makes good art art. He's not asking the question, you know, what is art versus what is not art in, in, as much as he was in his earlier essays. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to include them. As much as On Art is a really difficult essay to track down, um, I do think it's kind of the key to understanding what Tolstoy is saying here in What is Art. I don't think he's departed very far from those ideas that he was kicking around before, but I do think that his position has, in some pretty significant ways, changed. 
Um, and we need to both observe that change and recognize what that means for his philosophy of art, but I think that also informs him in being more antagonistic to a lot of these thinkers. Um, I think there are more writers and artists on the chopping block here in What is Art than was the case in many of his earlier works. Tolstoy was grumpy and didn't know why in some of his essays. Here he's come, he's lighted upon an idea of why he's grumpy, but honestly I'm not sure he's being totally faithful to himself or to his ideas. Um, which is a complicated thing to say, and a, a complicated thing to kind of take apart and prove here. So let's jump in. Um, and talk about what exactly is on Tolstoy's mind here and what is art and what is exactly bothering him about the situation. Um, and what is bothering him is pretty obvious. He, he starts with his discussion of the things that frustrate him about art. And this is going to be constant. Um, this is a pretty, sim or pretty consistent refrain throughout the text. Tolstoy is mad. And he is not just mad because art is bad, he is mad because art is destructive. It is hurting people. Um, and we start out off with this long descriptive passage. Much as we saw in some of the other essays, like this, this is how On Art started as well, um, Tolstoy gives us this pretty grim picture of what art is doing here in the very end of the 19th century. Images of, you know, young girls who are taping up their feet so they can become ballerinas and, like, injuring themselves, practicing day after day after day, spending hours and hours perfecting this art that may or may not be valuable, throwing the lives of these children, of young people, away. And then he kind of concludes this chapter with an examination of, hey, this one time I went to an opera rehearsal and literally saw this one scene, like minutes of this performance being rehashed over and over and over and over again, dozens of times, because one little tiny thing would go wrong and suddenly everything would have to stop and start all over again. Um, and I want to kind of like look at that, want to isolate that particular uh, passage just because it is so powerful the way that, that Tolstoy describes it here. It's clear that he's very angry about this, very upset by this, that, you know, just walking into a rehearsal was in some way traumatizing to him. Um, so he writes, and this is page 76 of my text, the procession is preceded by a recitative, delivered by a man dressed up like some variety of Turk, who, opening his mouth in a curious way, sings, Oh my, bring the bride. He sings and waves his arm, which is, of course, bare from under his mantle. The procession commences, but here the French horn and the accompaniment of the recitative does something wrong, and the director, with a shudder as if some catastrophe had occurred, raps with his stick on the stand. All is stopped, and the director, turning to the orchestra, attacks the French horn, scolding him in the rudest terms, as cabmen abuse one another, for taking the wrong note. And again the whole thing recommences. The Indians with their halberds again come on, treading softly in their extraordinary boots. Again the singer sings, Home I bring the bride. But here the pairs get too close together. More raps with the stick, more scolding, and a recommencement. Again, Home I bring the bride. Again the same gesticulation with the bare arm from under the mantle. And again the couples treading softly with halberds on their shoulders, some with sad and serious faces, some talking and smiling, arrange themselves in a circle and begin to sing. All seems to be going well, but again the stick raps, and the director, in a distressed and angry voice, begins to scold the men and women of the chorus. It appears that when singing, they had omitted to raise their hands from time to time in sign of animation. Are you all dead, or what? What oxen you are? Are you corpses that you can't move? Again they recommence. 
home I bring the bride, and again, with sorrowful faces, the chorus women sing first one and then another of them, raising their hands, but two chorus girls speak to each other, again, a more vehement rapping with the stick. And this continues. Like, I did not start at the beginning of this passage, and I did not end at the end of this passage. We see this home I bring the bride repeated some six or seven times by the time that Tolstoy is content with his depiction. And for him to spend this much time on it, for him to go into such detail evoking this scene, emphasizes how disturbed he is by this scene. And notice that he is especially offended by the abuse, how the director, like, shouts or screams at the young women who are talking in the chorus, or how the conductor is mad at the French horn player. Um, he goes on to emphasize that, like, I heard the words asses, fools, idiots, swine addressed to the musicians and, straight and singers at least 40 times in the course of one hour. And this, on the one hand, shouldn't come as a shock to us. Anyone who has spent any time in the theater, at whatever level, has probably encountered a scene like this at some point in their career. Like, I remember when I was a middle school student participating in theater performances, and I remember doing the same scene over and over and over again for the course of an hour. I remember in college being abused because I missed my lines or my blocking. Um, and this is, we should emphasize, an opera. It has a ton of moving parts, more so than even the most complicated theater production today. As much as a musical is probably as close as you can get to this, and as much as our musicals today are probably every bit as elaborate as an opera, remember that an opera has even more complexity, even more, you know, details to get right. It's frequently sung in a language unfamiliar to the audience and to probably significant portions of the cast and crew. You've got you know, not just your musical accompaniment, but a constant musical accompaniment going throughout the entire performance. You still have your choreography and your blocking and your singing and each musician potentially screwing things up, as well as people doing the sound and the lights. All of this would have been the case for an opera just as it is for a contemporary musical. And that means you've got a lot of moving parts, many of which will go wrong, which requires all of this repetition over and over and over again. And... On the one hand, here in the 20th century, we have gotten it down to a science. Um, contemporary directors of musicals and movies frequently have a system for being able to sort of stagger the errors, make it so, you know, once the actors finally get on stage, it'll be the fault of the crew or, you know, other technical problems rather than theirs. They have perfected their lines long before they actually make it to the actual stage. Um, but it's complicated. And like I said, this shouldn't be a familiar scene. We should look at this and say, why is Tolstoy so mad? This is normal. This is what art looks like. But that's just Tolstoy's point. You know, a hundred years ago, this wasn't normal. This was sort of this pinnacle of artistic achievement, following in the footsteps of this Wagnerian idea of Gestamtkunstwerk, this idea of all of the arts coming together for a single artistic performance. Opera was not just singing and music and choreography, it was all of the arts, sound and sight. Like, it was supposed to be beautiful on stage at every moment, as well as it was beautiful to the ears, as well as it was beautiful to the mind. Every sense sort of stimulated and, and just encouraged to fly to the highest heights of fancy. And... This idea, this Gustomkunstwerk, this complete work, this uniting of all of the arts, this is pretty constant into the 20th century as well. 
contemporary film, contemporary musicals, stage productions, all of these to some degree believe in this idea that we can in fact incorporate all of these artistic movements, make them all beautiful, use them at the highest pitch that they are possible, and incorporate them all into the overall work. And what Tolstoy notes here is that in doing so, you're doing a lot of damage to the people involved. This is not only an extremely expensive endeavor, but it is also expensive from a sort of human cost perspective. It is requiring hours and hours for dozens of musicians and actors and cast members and crew members. Hundreds of people are being employed in this work, and importantly for Tolstoy, again, remember back in On Art, he emphasized that the fundamental goal of art was uniting people. He is especially scandalized by the fact that these people are not united, but actually abusing each other, insulting each other, upset with one another. And notice, too, the way that the actual cast and crew are behaving. On the one hand, here's the director screaming at people, you know, shouting and insulting and swearing at them. But on the other hand, notice that it seems like the crew isn't taking this too seriously. The random extras, the halberdiers, are apparently chatting with one another. The chorus girls are doing the same. And... None of these people are terribly invested in what's going on, perhaps because there's so many moving parts, and because everything is happening over and over and over again, it's boring. It sucks. The natural human inclination at this point is to sort of not take it seriously, and yet, by not taking it seriously, they exacerbate the problem. Tolstoy sees this as being, in some ways, seriously horrifying. Truly, like, soul-crushingly horrifying. This is not what art is supposed to do. But there's another dimension to this as well. As much as Tolstoy is scandalized by the sort of immorality of the artistic production, how many people are involved, how much expense is being spent, you know, how could that money be used elsewhere, could we be bringing people out of poverty instead of putting on these lavish operas, the nail in the coffin here, the reason why Tolstoy sees this as such a huge problem is because not only is this, you know, separating people and causing this kind of friction and, you know, spending all of these people's hard-earned time, money, and lives doing these things, but it is at the end of the day for a select few. The opera isn't for everyone. It is for, in Tolstoy's terms, the upper classes alone. Now, we should emphasize here at the end of the 19th century, when he says the upper classes, he means not just, like, the elite, the rich people, you know, the czar and the lords and, you know, various important businessmen and rich people, but also the middle class, the bourgeoisie, the, the traders and middle managers and, you know, various civil functionaries hanging out within the, the elaborate system of the, the Russian civil government. Tolstoy is emphasizing that as much as, you know, yes, this is this elaborate production, and even if the ultimate thing that it produces is fine and great, it doesn't matter because 99% of Russian citizens, and indeed 99% of Europeans, and 99% of people in the world, will never be able to appreciate it. It is not just something that is destructive to the people engaged in this activity, but it is in fact limited, skewed to just a handful. And I want to stress that. Because on some level, our whole perspective on art is a little bit different than this. 
as much as talking about the opera and talking about its expenditure and talking about the loss of life and limb, the people whose lives are consumed by these productions, is very much something that we could compare to both, like, the creation of theatrical works and musicals today, as well as the creation of movies. What I really want to emphasize here is that there is something astonishingly undemocratic about the artistic productions that Tolstoy is observing in the 19th century, as opposed to the productions that are created in our society today. Now, we need to draw a line here, in short. There is a fundamental difference between live production, as Tolstoy is describing it here, and recorded production, as we see it today. It is still a business of the middle class and the upper class to put on a musical. And I say that as someone who has gone to several Broadway musicals. Yes, they are affordable, almost certainly more affordable than the opera was in Tolstoy's day. It certainly reaches lower in the ranks than was the case back in 1896 when Tolstoy is writing. But at the same time, I want you to think for a moment about Hamilton. Hamilton, the breakout success of the mid-2000s, that musical that was just, like, shocking everybody, it was so exciting, everybody wanted to see it, and importantly, you could not get tickets to the Broadway version of Hamilton for years, because it was solidly booked month after month, year after year, decade after decade, until literally we hit the pandemic and Disney Plus released the recording of the Hamilton performance on Disney Plus, at which point tons of people for the first time were able to see this thing. That's what I want to emphasize here. On some level, like theatrical performance, live performance, remains a middle-class and upper-class luxury. It remains a work that is only possible with the effort of dozens, if not hundreds of people, and working in tandem after spending hours and hours of their lives perfecting this particular performance, and ultimately only a handful of people are going to enjoy it. Now, you could make the argument it's more complicated than that. Disney Plus did, in fact, release the recording. It was a nationwide phenomenon. Even people who didn't see Hamilton were, at the end of the day, excited that it existed. It represented them, even if they couldn't go see it. But that's kind of warped when you think about it. Especially because think of what Hamilton aspired to be. It was supposedly the uber-democratic musical. It was, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, immigrant from Puerto Rico, coming in and celebrating the efforts of immigrants in the American Revolution. And all of these presidents and all of these functionaries and all of these rich people and all of these senators and congressmen would go to see it, but the people who actually were doing the work, the people this musical was supposedly celebrating, frequently could not. Those same immigrants responsible for building up the country were celebrated in the very text of this musical, and yet would only rarely be able to get a seat to actually see it. Like, there was, I remember, a moment in the performance where, you know, then-President Donald Trump went to see Hamilton, and they actually prefaced the musical with a sort of caution, a kind of rebuke, a comment that this was meant to be a celebration of democratic values and that they did not necessarily agree with Trump's perspective. It was in the newspapers, it was a big deal, people lost their shit over it. And... That is as close as we get to an acknowledgement of the disconnect here, the hypocrisy on display here. And I'm not calling out Lin-Manuel Miranda. I think he's a fantastic artist. We'll talk about that later. 
but I want to emphasize that Tolstoy has a point here. But I do want to contrast that with film. Because where theatrical performances are necessarily, by their very structure, limited, certain rich people have seen Hamilton four times more than the poor people that they're meant to represent, and there's something weird and wrong about that. I should also emphasize that as soon as it was put on film, suddenly everybody could see it. Like, yes, you had to buy Disney+, Plus. yes, you had to, you know, pay your ten bucks a month, but it was affordable in a way the musical simply was not. And I want to emphasize that because Tolstoy is definitely emphasizing it here. Some of the arguments Tolstoy is making don't apply to certain art forms at certain times in history. And I want to stress that. There is a fundamental difference that Tolstoy is isolating here between democratic art, art that is clearly made for and appeals to everyone, versus elite art. Art that can, by necessity, only cater to a handful of people, either because it only appeals to their specific tastes, or because it is literally too expensive for anyone else to observe, participate in, or enjoy. In this case, the opera that he is describing here, he is that offended by because all of this work is being poured into a production that will only entertain a handful of people. And on the one hand, we should sit there and also be scandalized with him. Also recognize that, yes, this kind of sucks. But we also need to recognize that Tolstoy is looking at a very particular entity here. And that we need to be able to distinguish and separate all art from this kind of extremely classist art. Art that is live and in person and reserved for only a handful of people, whether it is the opera or a contemporary musical or an art exhibition of actual real live art pieces and not just the prints that they sell at the museum gift shop, an art exhibition that maybe only a handful of people can get in to see before it is taken off of you know the galleries at the Met or wherever. Um, versus the art that everyone can enjoy, be it a novel or a movie or a print of an artwork that everybody is familiar with. I want to draw these lines because they don't necessarily exist in Tolstoy's day, or more accurately, they do exist and Tolstoy isn't paying attention to it. It's something we should be observant about. It's something that we should acknowledge and recognize, even as Tolstoy doesn't necessarily. Because as much as the 19th century is, in fact, this sort of, like, high-water moment for extremely elite art, the opera is at its most decadent, the, you know, like, the great works of literature and poetry, the great works of, of painters and sculptors are being exhibited in specific galleries in specific cities for only a handful of people to enjoy and observe, we should also recognize that the 19th century is the great era of the early mass media. This is where Sherlock Holmes and the Scarlet Pimpernel get their start. This is where, you know, mass prints of certain artworks are being reproduced and circulated. This is where art is at the middle of a kind of identity crisis. And on the one hand, that identity crisis is very much personified, very much made real in that distinction of art versus not art. This is art because it is appealing to some higher taste. It does have some greater, you know, standard of beauty that has been applied to it versus non-art, i.e. this is just a print, this is just trash, this is just something that everyone can enjoy. Tolstoy is hyper-aware of that distinction. 
But you'll remember that in our last discussion, I kind of threw that distinction out. Largely because I don't think it's terribly profitable to our age. It's not a conversation that we are necessarily having all that much, and when we do have it, it doesn't tend to be very profitable, except as a means of gatekeeping. In Tolstoy's day, that's not true, because we're on the frontiers of popular art versus elite art. Between this idea of art as being reserved and accepted for a handful versus art that is reserved and accepted for no one and everyone can enjoy it. So keep that in mind here. Let us recognize what art Tolstoy is thinking about and what art Tolstoy is mad about. And as we apply his principles to discussion of contemporary art forms, we need to make these sorts of caveats and exceptions. We need to recognize what Tolstoy specifically is mad about, namely the amount of work that is being put into something that will only please or only appeal to a select few. That's what makes him mad. So a lot of the things that we spend a lot of time and effort on today, like making Marvel movies, for example, where literally millions, if not billions of dollars are flushed into this industry on a regular basis, kind of doesn't apply because everybody comes out enjoying the Marvel movie, in some sense. Like, we can talk about artistic merit later, but that's not what Tolstoy is concerned with here. We'll get there. So... With this in mind, Tolstoy turns his attention from the sort of excesses of art, the damage that art does on a sort of purely practical level, and the elitism of the artists of the day, and turns his attention to a sort of history of aesthetics, looking back specifically to the 18th century and Baumgarten, and sort of following many of the major aesthetic theories and theorists up until the present day, which for him, like I said, is late 19th century. And he includes some major luminaries here. Like, yes, there are a ton of names on this list, which, you know, Elmer Mod actually, like, encourages the reader to skip it if they're not interested um, in the history of aesthetics. For our purposes, yes, we're going to pay attention. I actually find it very convenient that having arbitrarily started with Tolstoy as our examination of ethics on art, he includes a sort of, you know, summary of the last 200 years of art criticism and aesthetics. Like, I do, in fact, want to confront these theories. We are going to see representatives of a lot of these ideas hanging out in the 20th century. Let's at least take a sort of brief overview here. There are a lot of names on here that are kind of totally unrecognizable today. Some of the major voices of the 18th and 19th century have long since stopped being major voices. But you will still see a lot of major players and major philosophers that we recognize today as well. Like, Goethe is one of the theorists that uh, Tolstoy recognizes here, and he refers to Goethe's work fairly often. In fact, I'm going to strongly encourage that you familiar refamiliarize yourself with Goethe's Faust um, for our next discussion, because Tolstoy is going to take some very deliberate pot shots at it, and it's kind of a perfect example of the art that Tolstoy does appreciate, and suddenly is questioning now in the back half of his career after his conversion. Um, but we're also going to see... Edmund Burke, one of the early engineers of contemporary conservatism. We're going to see major philosophers on this list, like Kant and Hegel. Um, Schiller, who admittedly we don't read nearly as often now, was a huge influence on the 19th century. He's one of those guys that Dostoevsky refers to all the time um, as a sort of student of both Kant and Goethe in his own right. Um, we see a number of other contemporary, like 19th century thinkers, like Schelling, like Schopenhauer for that matter, but notice that 
Tolstoy doesn't really consider him an, an aesthete here, but he's going to refer to him often later. Tolstoy is also definitely picking fights with Nietzsche. In fact, Nietzsche is probably the one scholar slash artist slash aesthetic philosopher who we really do need to sort of recap here. Because Tolstoy is specifically angry with Nietzsche because as far as Tolstoy can, is concerned, Nietzsche is sort of commending and recommending a philosophy of art that appeals to superior refined tastes, the tastes of the elite, over and above the masses. This is what Tolstoy considers to be the cancer at the root of contemporary arts excesses. Scholars and thinkers like Nietzsche and like the social Darwinists that both sort of hang around with him and that follow him, who argue that art should be specifically reserved for the elite, for the rich, for the, the people with extremely discerning taste, specifically because they're the only one whose taste matters. Tolstoy cannot be more angry with this philosophy. And part of that may very well be the stuff that he said in what is art, or in his essay on art, um, that thing about like art is supposed to, by its very nature, unite people, where Nietzsche and his, his ilk are specifically saying that actually it needs to divide people. You can tell who are the superior men, the ubermensch, by their understanding of certain artworks as opposed to the common taste, the people at the bottom of the hierarchical pyramid who have no discernment and no taste and who will laugh at anything and who will appreciate even the most trashy, like, exploitative art. That for Nietzsche is bedrock to his aesthetics, or at the very least, it is what a lot of people are taking away from Nietzsche's aesthetics. Honestly, Nietzsche's aesthetics are a little bit more complicated than that. We'll get there. Um, maybe. Maybe not. Tolstoy is upset because his vision of what art is supposed to be and supposed to do is kind of rooted in this democratic spirit, this bringing people together, and if it's not doing that, if it is specifically over the heads of a whole bunch of people, whatever that is supposed to mean, then it's not performing its responsibility correctly. But the key ideas that Tolstoy does draw on here from this history of aesthetics, besides the sort of Nietzschean, you know, superhuman art appreciation thing, we should definitely look at sort of these this transition between the 18th century and the 19th century and beyond, we should look at the sort of dominant philosophical ideas that are sort of inhabiting these aesthetics at this time. And it's interesting to note that from our perspective, like I've been teaching, again, general humanities for quite a while now, I tend to see this as this really important transitional period between the modern Enlightenment era thinking and the postmodern romantic and beyond thinking, a, an appreciation that Tolstoy doesn't necessarily appreciate in his own right. He recognizes much of the same stuff that I recognize when I talk about this to my general humanities students, but at the same time, he's not aware that there is, in fact, a sea change happening here and that there is, in fact, merit to the change that has occurred. Tolstoy is, to some degree, stuck in the past, and we will talk about that. Tolstoy as old man yelling at the kids to get off his lawn. We should definitely take that into consideration here. But notice that Tolstoy emphasizes that most of the 18th century philosophers, going all the way back to Baumgarten and working all the way up to Kant, are primarily focused on this idea of capital B beauty. 
that art and the purpose of art is about beauty. And this definitely goes all the way back to Plato, and we could definitely talk about the functions of art, the way that the Greeks look at it, and Tolstoy even does mention that to some degree. But he also recognizes that Plato himself will critique art on the grounds of not just its beauty, but its goodness. You know, think of that passage in Republic II that I talk about in my mythology class, where Plato specifically goes out of his way to say, you know, there are bad myths out there. There are myths that are causing children to believe lies about the gods and about society and about religion, and we need to stop teaching them. Art is powerful, and therefore we need art to teach good messages in addition to being beautiful or noteworthy in its own right. And Tolstoy is emphasizing that most of these 18th century thinkers and most of these 19th century thinkers are forgetting that. They see no moral dimension to art, and many of these aesthetic artists, philosophers, thinkers, etc., are going out of their way to say there is no moral dimension to art. As long as it conveys beauty, it is justified. Don't ask any more questions. Art's function is, has always been, will always be, and is always limited to beauty in some sense. And Tolstoy is irked by this. But Tolstoy is as much irked by this because it ignores morality as he is irked by this because it ignores a consistent definition. Beauty remains, for many of these philosophers, an ambiguous concept. Kant, of course, has his extremely specific understanding of beauty, but even then, Tolstoy is kind of, you know, flustered by the language, and honestly, we should be too. Like, Kant is getting over, overly analytical on this one, I suspect. I, like, I have not read the Critique of Judgment in a long time, but my understanding is it did not leave enough of an impression for me to really be able to cogently talk about Kant's theory of art, maybe in another lecture series at another time. Um... But Tolstoy is emphasizing that even if Kant did come up with a very specific definition, he's just one voice in a sea, and not a lot of people are picking his voice specifically out from the rest. Especially because thinkers like Hegel and sort of these transitional thinkers between the Enlightenment ver version of art as conducting beauty to this idea of art as conducting this spiritual beauty, giving us pleasure in some sense, it is very much muddying the waters here. What Kant calls beauty seems to be specific and universal, but eventually we have thinkers like Hegel who are saying that this beauty is personal, spiritual, metaphysical, and apparently totally unable to be defined. Something by its very nature undefinable, which Tolstoy basically just reeks of pleonasm, like some kind of nonsense that, you know, is fancily bandied about in order to get people to think that you're being serious or, or, you know, intelligent, where in fact it is just nonsense. It is pointing to something that doesn't exist. But I want to emphasize that transition as well. Because as much as the idea of beauty is kind of ambiguous, and I said at the outset of this lecture series that I'm not going to take it too terribly seriously for our purposes, because again, I can't define it. I don't know what beauty is supposed to look like after having read all this stuff, so I don't think that it is a terribly great metric. But at the same time, notice that we go from this idea of beauty as something objective to beauty as something subjective. And that gradually we see Tolstoy observe and acknowledge that the virtue of beauty is gradually being replaced for most of these aesthetic writers by the standard of taste, a personal pleasure that one derives from this work. 
many of the thinkers that he's talked about here have identified beauty with pleasure in some respect. Beauty is the thing that inspires a certain kind of pleasure in us. That's what many of these artists, at least in Tolstoy's summary, tend to say. But eventually we go from beauty as inspiring pleasure for everyone to taste for certain kinds of beauty inspiring pleasure in those who have that taste. So what Tolstoy is emphasizing is that these aestheticians, these writers about aesthetics, are gradually getting more and more narrow in their application of how beauty is supposed to work, how art is supposed to communicate. We go from beauty as being something that everybody, by their innate nature, understands and appreciates, to something that only refined tastes can appreciate and acknowledge. And in so doing, we see art being justified by the people commenting about what art's function is, being justified not as something that appeals to everyone, as something that has some sort of universal or eternal significance, to this thing that only will appeal to those who know what to find in it. And that's dodgy. Tolstoy points out that it's dodgy, if only because it is absolutely flying in the face of his, you know, again, super democratic understanding of the way that art is supposed to work. But we should also be saying to ourselves, yeah, that sounds fishy. If the worth of a work of art can only be defined by a certain handful of people, that is a system that is ripe for exploitation. That is a system that is almost certainly missing so much of what makes art valuable in the effort to just promote or celebrate a very narrow understanding of art that one or two particular people have. Especially because, again, as Tolstoy acknowledges in his history of aesthetics here, many of these aesthetic writers are basically just the followers of certain teachings or camps. You have all the Kantian aestheticians, like Fichte and Schelling, and you have all the Hegelian aestheticians. You have your Schopenhauer, who's separate, but you have Nietzsche, who's a student of him. Um, in some sense, we do just follow along with whatever the dominant theory is in order to sort of improve upon our own circumstances. There are clear, selfishly motivated reasons, profit-driven reasons, to say that one or another kind of art is the most important kind of art. And as a consequence, Tolstoy accuses these sorts of aestheticians, these sorts of art critics and theorists, of being, at the end of the day, artificial. And that this is itself reciprocal. When the critic is working with an artificial definition of what art is supposed to be, then the artist, in an attempt to conform to that critic's standard, produces an artificial work of art as well. And this, you'll notice, is an absolutely, like, totally a reference to what Tolstoy was talking about in his On Art essay, this idea of sincerity as being one of the fundamental pillars underlying the purpose and meaning of art. Sincerity is crucial. There cannot be some sort of secondary outside influence. The artist is supposed to communicate their feelings in an effort to sort of make themselves better known to others and to make others better known to one another. And instead, here we have an artist basically cutting themselves off from their experience in order to conform to the ideas that somebody else has perpetrated for no necessary good reason. This is what he accuses Mont or Guy de Maupassant of doing. 
specifically of like appealing to the sexual, you know, proclivities of these higher artists, even though he does in fact have this innate sense of what is right and wrong, something that he is kind of intentionally suppressing. Um, this is what makes him an insincere artist, a perverted artist, a per artist perverted by his circumstances, an artist who does not understand the actual virtue of what he's saying because there are so many stupid, idiotic, aesthetic voices out there emphasizing something that is not true. This is how art is being damaged. But in order to talk about how this works, how art is damaged, we do have to contrast against what um, what Tolstoy says here about what actually art is supposed to be about, um, specifically religious art. And this is the standard here, and we should probably be a little bit suspicious of this as well, but let's at least you know understand it before we get there. Um, Tolstoy is emphasizing here, unlike what he said in, on art, where he's emphasizing the sort of unity of these artworks, as well as um, the, the the sort of way that this art like unifies humans to one another. You know, all of that is is very much emphasized, and I praised it at the time, and I stand by that praise. I honestly think it's a better standard than the one that he's bringing up here. What he is suggesting here is that good art speaks to the religious perspective and sentiment of the time. Um, that's the goal of art. That is what it is supposed to do. It is supposed to move religion forward. And this is complicated, um, not just because, you know, like, who gets to say what good religion is versus bad religion, especially when, the, like, the first thing that Tolstoy acknowledges is that there's actually a ton of bad religion and therefore a ton of bad religious art because, you know, religion has frequently been confused about what it's supposed to be doing. Like, apparently for Tolstoy, the entirety of the Middle Ages are basically, like, the church lost in its own sort of self-celebration and pride, and therefore any art produced during this time should be thrown out, presumably including, like, medieval altarpieces where, you know, you've got the flat two-dimensional icons and images of, like, the Virgin Mary and Jesus or whatever, as well as Renaissance art and, you know, the works of Michelangelo and Raphael, who Tolstoy does, in fact, single out and criticize. Like, he even calls out the Last Judgment of Michelangelo at one point as being thoroughly artificial and totally wrong. Um, which, sidebar, notice that Tolstoy does, like pick out a lot of established artists and even recognized masters for criticism here. Among the list of Tolstoy's targets are Shakespeare and Dante. Like, you know, two of the greatest artists that have ever lived by most people's reckoning. Um, both of these artists, by Tolstoy's consideration, considers, or he thinks that these artists are perverse, pernicious, mis- like, like misaligned they too like Guy de Maupassant are confused um, and therefore wrong in their artistic aspirations we should note that um, we should note that like in addition to Tolstoy having a very sort of narrow understanding of what art is for and a pretty broad understanding of all the damage that art does he is willing to call out some of the wide, most widely respected artists of his day for criticism and condemnation um, which, again, we'll come back to that. But notice that the art that he does specifically praise comes up fairly often. Frequently he talks about how, like, the book of Genesis is a masterpiece. 
um, a masterwork of the Jewish understanding of uh, religion and what religious art is supposed to be. The parables of Jesus he talks about frequently as being the great artistic expression of its day. As well as he goes a step further and includes the work of, as he calls him, Sakyamuni, i.e. the Buddha. So Buddhist teaching, like the, the Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, um, probably the Dhammapada. Um, he also talks about the Vedas, like the Hindu scriptures. And he says that all of these are, in their own right, masterpieces. That they do, in, in fact, express the religious convictions of the day in a way that communicates these convictions to the people who need to hear it the most. That, for Tolstoy, is what art is for, what it is supposed to be about. Um, and again, we don't get a whole lot else. Like, he does, in fact, at one point talk about the Iliad and the Odyssey, praises them for also expressing the Greek understanding of religion at the time, even though it is very much opposed to his own perspective of religion, at least as, you know, I understand it here. But generally, a lot of the stuff that we even associate with religious art, like, how can you not talk about Dante's Paradise Lost as being a religious expression of the day? He is willing to expressly con con criticize and condemn it. And... I have to wonder about this. Like, on the one hand, I think that his ideas here are really interesting. This idea that there is this overarching religious truth that does, in fact, need expression and re-expression from time to time. That I find fascinating. Because what that suggests about Tolstoy's philosophy is he recognized that the needs of religion do change over the course of 2,000 years and beyond. That what needed to be said about religion in 30 or 40 AD is actually radically different from what might need to be expressed about religion in 1000 or 1100 AD, which might differ again from what needs to be said in his own time, the 19th century. So Tolstoy considers some of his work to adequately perform this task, to adequately communicate the religious sentiments of the day, just as he praises Dostoevsky in a later chapter. Um, but this is this idea that there is a scale here. It does move. You can, in fact, have art performed for different purposes at different times in history, doing what art is supposed to do, advancing the truth of religious, you know, insight, but at the same time, Tolstoy isn't willing to acknowledge and singles out some of what you might assume is that religious expression for condemnation and criticism. So it's not clear what dimension of religious expression Tolstoy is talking about here. It's really hard to get at. And I honestly think we would do better to go back to his earlier definition in On Art. But that's not our luxury. We're going to follow Tolstoy wherever he leads us here, so we're going to follow this out as much as we can. And I will say that there are two sort of, or let's say three, really important criteria that I do think Tolstoy accomplishes quite neatly here. First and foremost, I like that we've kicked out the beauty and the taste discussion. Obviously, that is what most offended Tolstoy about, his, about these earlier aesthetic writers, and he does manage to successfully evade that. It's hard to say exactly what Tolstoy's standard for fulfills the expectations of religion at the time, what that is supposed to mean, but at the very least, we've avoided one ambiguity in favor of another. 
And at the same time, Tolstoy is willing to give us some pretty concrete examples of what he is upset about, as well as what he is willing to praise um, for, you know, the purposes of trying to do that distingu distinguishing and understanding exactly what the problem here really is. Um, additionally, we have something that is applying universally. For Tolstoy, everybody has this religious sentiment. Everybody has this religious impetus and needs to be communicated with on this religious level. We are all born appreciating this kind of art, whatever it might be. So we have once again avoided the subjectivity and the elitism. It applies universally. It applies democratically. It is not specifically limited to a handful of people. But Tolstoy loses points here. Because he notes that the people who are, you know, caught up in this new artistic perspective, this false prophecy of aesthetic goodness, are frequently so perverse, either by the system or in their own right as they perpetuate the system, to recognize the virtue of this religious art. Like, you have artists like Baudelaire saying he doesn't see the beauty in something like Genesis, or doesn't appreciate the beauty of something democratic, who specifically go out of their way to say art is meant to be obscure, is meant to be reserved for a handful of people, and should gatekeep itself in that sense. So, on the one hand, Tolstoy is saying, yes, all of this art applies universally, but he also makes the caveat it applies universally except for people who are too perverse to recognize it. So on the one hand, we have an elitism of art that says the underclasses are too, you know, rough, do not have the sufficient taste to appreciate good art. Here is Tolstoy responding, actually the upper classes do not have the taste to appreciate good art. And I'm not entirely sure we, you know, have successfully gotten to universality if we are excluding just a different group of people in this case. Lastly, he also makes that important distinction. There is a difference between beauty and goodness here. Um, and that's a fine distinction that he has brought up before, and that we very much started our discussion assuming, so we should probably like look at that a little bit more closely and appreciate it for what he's saying here. Tolstoy, in part because of the Russian language that he's dealing with, like at one point he literally just breaks down and says, hey, you know, when what, when what his art was published originally, it was meant to be published in a foreign language because Tolstoy didn't think he could get it past the censors. Um, in his preface here, he even notes that he did in fact successfully publish a version of what is art under the Tsar's censors, but it was so distorted and broken by the end of the process, especially once the church censors got a hold of it, that it ultimately turned out to be, you know, totally unrecognizable from Tolstoy's intentions, and Tolstoy repudiates it outright here. Um, he ultimately criticizes, says, actually, this is garbage. That version of what is art was total trash. Um, and Aylmer Maud even makes a note at one point saying that Tolstoy sent him the manuscript, hoping that it would get published in English because it would better reflect his thoughts in English than the Russian version that got censor-approved, specifically because the censors butchered Tolstoy's ideas and made them conform both to the patriotic sentiments of the late 19th century Russian regime as well as the religious sentiments of the late 19th century Russian church. It is clear here that Tolstoy is criticizing not just Catholicism, but Orthodoxy, Christianity in all its forms. Um, whereas the Orthodox censors were very critical of Tolstoy's ideas on that front and very much made it limited to a criticism of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism specifically, and accepting Ro or Russian Orthodoxy from that consideration. 
which I don't want to get into Tolstoy's theology here. Like, as much as I think it would be fascinating to study it, I definitely don't know it well enough to weigh in on it. Um, from the couple of glimpses that I've gotten here, it seems that Tolstoy is very critical of all of the Russian church uh, traditions as well as all church traditions across the board. He sees Christianity as being radically perverse in his own age, which, you know, I can't disagree with that. But he definitely dropped an allusion somewhere in the early chapters or in the preface where he mentioned that, like, actually Jesus' resurrection was a fiction and belies the truth of the crucifixion, and I, I definitely took a little umbrage on that one. So much as I am appreciative of Tolstoy's political perspective as Christian anarchist, I'm not entirely sure I can get behind his theology. So again, maybe we'll save that for another lecture series another day. For now, let us emphasize, we have here a rough outline of what Tolstoy is getting at, i.e. there is this religious sentiment that needs to be expressed, and it is up to art to express that truth. And what makes it truth is it applies to everybody throughout the period at which it is spoken, um, but it does in fact need to change and be modified from year to year necessarily, just as culture, society, the assumptions about the world changes. Yes, the New Testament is great, but a lot of those parables were specifically designed to appeal to people in their own time and have lost a lot of their meaning because of the 2000s intervening years. So apparently it is okay to update religious truth, not change it, Tolstoy would probably emphasize, but to update it, to make sure that it appeals to everyone today just as it appealed to everyone then. And anytime that you lose track of that, anytime that you artificially make your art, not with the sincerity of religious sentiment, but with this sort of exterior impetus, either because you want to make money or because you want to be famous or because you want to conform to some superficial aesthetic theory, that's bad news. That's as close to a major distinction between the two that we're going to get. And I honestly suspect we are still in the unity of human beings territory that Tolstoy talks about in On Art. We are still in that unity of expression, that saying what you feel in order to get other pe people to feel it with you. I definitely think that Tolstoy hasn't abandoned these ideas. I think that that's implicit in what he's saying about religious art here. But it's, again, hard to pick out here. So with that in mind, let's talk about what Tolstoy doesn't like. As much as trying to get at what Tolstoy is prescribing, what, you know, the richness of this artistic theory actually are is kind of difficult. Like, honestly, some of the best ideas that we're likely to get is in a passage that got excised from the original text. Um, like, let's look at that for a moment, because I am really interested by this, even if I do think it doesn't actually illuminate that much, because if anything, it just indicates that Tolstoy ultimately turned around on this idea. Um, at the end of the day, we have this great little footnote on page 140 to 142, where Maud emphasizes um, Tolstoy was frequently revising what is art as he was sending it to Aylmer Maud. And apparently one of the things that Tolstoy specifically instructed Maud to get rid of, but then Maud included as a footnote, just, you know, for better context, is this long passage where Tolstoy actually describes the relationship of goodness and beauty here. According to Tolstoy in this footnote, goodness, beauty, and truth are put on one level, and our th all three conceptions are treated as though they were fundamental and metaphysical, whereas in reality, such is not at all the case. Goodness is the eternal, the highest aim of our life. However we may understand goodness, our life is nothing but a striving towards the good, that is, towards God. 
Goodness is really the fundamental metaphysical perception which forms the essence of our consciousness, a perception not defined by reason. Goodness is that which cannot be defined by anything else, but which defines everything else. But beauty, if we do not want mere words, but speak of what we understand, beauty is nothing but what pleases us. The notion of beauty not only does not coincide with goodness, but rather is contrary to it. For the good most often coincides with victory over the passions, while beauty is at the root of our passions. Now, we should note that this opposition between goodness and beauty, Tolstoy is sort of talking about this in other places, sort of pointing at it in other places. Um, what he has emphasized is in, in other passages is that the Greeks very much had this conflated idea of goodness and beauty, the kalon with the, with the agathon. Um, and, like, he even uses the, the like, uh, sort of conjunction kalagathon at, at one point um, as the sort of recognition that, like, the Greeks were trying to wrestle with this idea and trying to combine these two ideas, an idea which we've talked about elsewhere and we probably are not going to repeat too terribly much. Um, but Tolstoy is emphasizing beauty, at least as we understand it here in the end of the 19th century, is connected to pleasure not to sort of excellence the way that the Greeks understood it, and therefore is in tune with our passions, not aligned against them. The passions do not make us worse here in the 19th century the way that it was in the Greek understanding, but rather we are supposed to indulge in them. And the business of indulging them is exactly that sort of elite attitude and behavior that Tolstoy is criticizing here. If, in fact, the religious sentiment is goodness, do what is right, which, as Tolstoy emphasizes, most usually looks like succumbing or suppressing the passions, rejecting them, rejecting those temptations, then the elite who are succumbing to them intentionally are as perverse as they get. They, the things that are beautiful here in the 19th century, or the, at least the things that we call beautiful here in the 19th century, are opposed to goodness, not in tune with them. Um, and this, too, flies in the face of Nietzsche. Like... What, one of the things that you will notice about, about Nietzsche's aesthetics, if you do in fact read a little bit more closely, is that he is trying to get back to the early Greek conception, the pre-Platonic Greek conception, the Dionysian Greek attitude as opposed to the Apollonian Greek attitude. Like this pervades a lot of Nietzsche's writing. Both The Birth of Tragedy, where he kind of sets out this distinction, but also later in things like Twilight of the Idols and Beyond Good and Evil, where he is going out of his way to criticize Plato as kind of bringing about this artificial morality that sort of crushes and, and suppresses the original native Dionysian impetus to morality, something akin to Rousseau's state of nature. Um, what Tolstoy is suggesting here is trying to realign beauty with goodness is just going to, here in the 19th century, distort what goodness actually is. It is perverse because goodness doesn't look like that anymore. And we might have a conversation about whether that's what nature actually means or not. At any rate, this is how Tolstoy understands it, and that's what we're running with right now. So, in chapter 10, and this is kind of where I want to hang our hat for the rest of this discussion. In chapter 10, this is where Tolstoy starts to, to call the sheep from the goats, so to speak, to emphasize exactly how perverse this contemporary art looks like. 
He starts in chapter 9 by sort of making the broad strokes. In chapter 10, he gets super specific, and that's where I want to kind of spend a lot of our time so we can get at more clearly what Tolstoy is mad about in these particular writers and also sort of talk about exactly what the merits and demerits of this kind of writing and art actually is. What Tolstoy is suggesting is that here in the 19th century, here at the end of the 19th century especially, art has become perverse. It is now actively destructive in a way that even in Tolstoy's own day, it doesn't, it wasn't necessarily. And Tolstoy hedges himself here. He's saying, like, I don't want to be the guy who says, you know, it's all the new stuff that's corrupt and all the old stuff is fine. He does, in fact, say, actually thinking about it, I'm going to have to criticize the stuff that I understood and appreciated once upon a time as well. And Goethe's Faust is one of the first things that's on the list. Like, Goethe was, of course, the writer that all the romantics were enamored with. You know, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and all of the great Russian writers, they all were frequently talking about Goethe and, and recognizing his genius as the sort of foundation of, of romantic thought and even of realistic thought insofar as it is this sort of, like, you know, anti-classist, raising up the, the plight of the poor people and, and aiming to reform society with artistic purposes, as much as Tolstoy does embrace that and sees what is art as being an attempt to, you know, restore the original artistic purpose of unifying people against this sort of elitist, gatekeeping, classist perspective on art, as much as Goethe was, at the end of the day, holding up the people, Tolstoy recognizes that his success is dependent on whether or not you understand what he's doing. In some sense, his art is perverse because even if he is telling the elite to hold up the peasant, he isn't writing in a way that the peasant can appreciate. He is, at the end of the day, doing the same amount of damage that contemporary art is doing. So, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what makes this art perverse. How is it damaging? How is it misunderstanding the goals of art in the first place? And to do that, we need to talk about what art looks like here in the 19th century. Now, when I talk about this stuff in my humanities class, I usually divide the 19th century into two major artistic movements and then talk about the late 19th century as being its own entity more bound up with the 20th century and its ideas. We can't do that here because we are literally right at the transition point. But let's talk about our major movements. On the one hand, we have Romanticism, the stuff that Tolstoy grew up with, the great artistic movements that most of these Russian authors are very familiar with and that constituted sort of the foundation of what constituted great art at, in their schooling and their education. Um, this includes the work of Goethe, as we talked about. It includes the work of Victor Hugo, who you'll notice that Tolstoy frequently praises in contrast to the contemporary French artists who he finds disgusting. Um, this includes, for the Russians especially, Pushkin, or at least most of Pushkin. Um, and you'll notice that Tolstoy will eventually uh, like praise Evgeny Onegin for being good art, like one of Pushkin's masterpieces that has not lost its masterpiece status by Tolstoy's, rec or by Tolstoy's lights. Um, and for us English speakers, we should definitely be thinking about uh, like Dickens, though Dickens is more realistic. Um, for you know our actual like romantic perspective, perhaps we would be better off looking at Byron, um, who that's ambiguous. Like Tolstoy isn't quite on board with Byron here because Byron does have a little bit more of the jeering elitist quality to him. He is a late romantic, not an early romantic. Um, 
But that itself brings up an interesting point that I really want to kind of highlight in our discussion of how art became perverse for Tolstoy, specifically that it moves. The movements, as much as we tend to see them as sort of like monolithic entities, and as much as I like to talk about them as monolithic entities, do in fact change. When Goethe wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther and Faust, he was doing something revolutionary. He was appealing to an underserved minority, i.e. lots and lots of people who weren't being represented to rich people and didn't have the money to defend themselves. He was criticizing an artificial morality that oppressed them and trying to liberate them in some sense. But by the time that you have someone like Byron with his Don Juan, as much as Byron is at the end of the day fighting for the rights of, you know, a sort of sexual liberation, and, like, pointing to the oppressed peasants and, and these minorities as a way of expressing that, he is, at the end of the day, doing it with a level of sophistication that people no longer can appreciate. Or rather, like, lower-class people cannot appreciate. Romanticism has moved over the course of 50 years from the avant-garde, revolutionary philosophy of a bunch of writers with an actual axe to grind and a social program to promote to the art of the entrenched. Romanticism went from being the art of the, you know, person fighting for the lower class to the art entrenched by the upper class. By the time that realism hits the scene, the Académie Française is basically holding up Romanticism as the greatest art form and the only art form that can exist here in the mid-19th century. So realism has a similar trajectory. It starts very much as this effort to once again hold up the underclass. As a reaction to that entrenched, now elite romanticism, it is now meant to personify and recognize the you know, plight of people who are oppressed, the plight of the underclass against the romantic tradition, and it too, over the course of 50 years, becomes this entrenched attitude, becomes this entrenched elitist sort of art movement. And on some level, we should note that, that Tolstoy himself, as much as we may call him a modernist now, was very much in his own mind realist, writing books that anyone could read and holding that up as, you know, what art is supposed to be. What he is seeing now is people pushing back against this movement. Romanticism started out as a revolutionary movement and became the traditional art system of the elite. It was replaced by realism, the new revolutionary art movement, which itself became the tradition of the elite. Now we see more people pushing back against it. And here we have a number of names for them. And I don't want to get bogged down in the names because a lot of them we've jettisoned over time. Let us refer to them as the Impressionists, i.e. the likes of Manet, Monet, Pizarro, as uh, Tolstoy sort of identifies them here. Um, we've got the decadence, that is to say, writers like Baudelaire, Mallarmé, which we'll come back to Mallarmé, um, a lot of these poets who are sort of deliberately obscure for reasons that we will talk about in a moment, and we could probably point to the musicians. I'm not sure what name to give them, though. Let's call them the post-romantics, for lack of a better term. By which we mean late Beethoven, Wagner, Brahms, Strauss, and a number of other uh, composers that Tolstoy also identifies here. Um, now, what we should emphasize is that we are seeing another movement taking shape. 
But what Tolstoy is specifically criticizing here is that this new art movement, celebrated though it may be, here as it emerges in the latter half of the 19th century and becomes de rigueur here in like the very turn of the century here in the 1890s, it is in some sense revolutionary, yes, but not democratic. That's the criticism that Tolstoy is leveling here. When Romanticism upended neoclassicism, it was doing so for the people, and was meant to appeal to the people even if it didn't necessarily succeed and Tolstoy singles out works of Romantic art that did not succeed. Again, Goethe's Faust is kind of the perfect example. Because on the one hand, yes, it is this harrowing story about how poor Margareta gets screwed over by rich, you know, capable Faust trying to enjoy his pleasures and, and trying to, you know, experience all that the world has to offer. But on the other hand, it's filled with all this random junk that Tolstoy recognizes as sort of obscuring and obfuscating the point of this novel. You know, we've got the whole, all those prefaces that may or may not make any sense to the rest of the story. We've got the Walpurgis Night diversion. We've got, you know, the chapter at the Witch's Hut, which it's hard to say how much this actually means anything to the people who were watching it. But notice that for Goethe, like based on what we can actually see in Goethe's Faust, that was included to make the play more entertaining. It was included to appeal to lower class tastes, to get their penny as well. So, again, it's super complicated. Let's recognize, you know, Tolstoy may very well just be wrong about Goethe. It's just that the play hasn't aged well. Um, or rather that, you know, taste of the peasantry has changed, dare we say. Um, but that's definitely not something that Tolstoy is willing to entertain for our purposes. Um, what we need to acknowledge now is that there is something fundamentally artificial, at least as Tolstoy acknowledges it, in the new contemporary art movements that are coming about. Impressionism is probably the best example we're going to get, if only because it's something that we are familiar with pretty easily today, like talking about Beethoven and Wagner is going to be way harder, um, and talking about Baudelaire is going to be roughly impossible, because as far as I know, nobody reads Baudelaire, at least here in the States, where, you know, the English-speaking literature is the priority and not so much the French stuff. Um, like, we'll get to Baudelaire. I want to talk about Baudelaire. Absolutely, I want to talk about Baudelaire and Mallarmé, but for now, let's talk about Impressionism, because that's the easy reference point here. Tolstoy has been to Impressionistic exhibitions, or rather, his daughter has been. In fact, like, there's this great moment in Chapter 10 where he's like, okay, so here is just the excerpts from my daughter's diaries, who is an accomplished artist and went to an exhibition and was, you know, horrified at what she saw there. Um, P.S. Tolstoy has a habit of stealing his family members' journals. It's kind of a mess. We're not going to talk about it extensively here. Maybe another day. Um, but in this passage, we see that she's going to see these works of what we regard as, as masters of the Impressionistic art form, especially artists like Monet and Manet, and she's disgusted by them. They don't communicate anything. It's hard to see even what is being communicated. The colors are all wrong, and the, the things don't look the way that they're supposed to. It doesn't conform to our artistic experience. This is not something that this person knows how to read, in some sense. And Tolstoy, as a consequence, says, therefore it is worthless, it is bankrupt, and everyone who is celebrating this crap is doing so artificially. They have held up this new art movement as being the new thing to celebrate, even though at the end of the day it is incomprehensible and therefore immoral. 
It is gatekeeping, not democratic. And I want to emphasize this specifically because there is probably no period in the history of art that is more celebrated today here in the 21st century than the Impressionists. Like, the same paintings, probably not the very same paintings, but the same painting style that Tolstoy's daughter is criticizing as being incomprehensible is now hanging on every dorm wall as basically kitsch. You know, we think of Van Gogh's Starry Night or Monet's Lilies or the Haystacks. You know, we get the those pictures of, like, harbors at night with all the paint splotches all over the place. Yes, to someone schooled in the art of the Romantics and the Realists, this is all probably incomprehensible. But today, we, as a culture, recognize, can immediately identify and interpret these works of art and hold them up as masterpieces. Like, if you were probably to talk to your average college student and ask what are the three greatest masterpieces in the history of art, you're probably likely to hear something from the Renaissance and something from Impressionism. I don't know what the third one will be, probably a second one from either one of those movements. Those are the two movements that everybody is familiar with. Those are the two movements that I can teach the most easily. They're almost the most immediately recognizable. And it is, in some way, super ironic that Tolstoy is here calling this out as elite art when a mere hundred years down the road, everybody regards this as being almost as democratic and immediately recognizable and obvious as any art that has ever been produced. Like, yeah, the jury may still be out about Picasso or about, you know, the, the abstract works of the mid-20th uh, mid century. We may be on the fence about surrealism or about Dada, sure, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But Impressionism is almost universally regarded as being a great art form and one of the most productive periods in the history of artistic creation. Um, so on some level, Tolstoy is dead wrong here. And I want to be aware of that. Like, I want to recognize in a way that Tolstoy simply doesn't that the history of art and the trajectory of art is as important to understanding art's role, significance, and importance as any of the stuff that Tolstoy is bringing up here. Um, and on the one hand, that just convolutes things. Like, if I were to put, if you immediately came to me and said, okay, so you are criticizing Tolstoy's fairly concrete definition of art as being serving the religious purposes of the time, or bringing people together, you know, take your pick. Again, I kind of like his on-art definition better, but whatever. If you came to me and said, what makes art great? I would probably have an even less satisfying, even more ambiguous answer. I would probably have to say something like, what do the other artists say is great? Which sucks. And I recognize that it sucks. This is exactly the problem I'm running into when I'm talking about canonicity in literature. It's almost certainly the same problem that comes up here in art. And it is, if anything, the best answer, but at the same time, incredibly unsatisfying, deeply you know, frustrating, and not at all helpful for discerning the merits of art in our own time when we haven't had a whole bunch of people going around saying, yes, this is great, or no, this sucks. But at the same time, how else can you explain what has happened here? How else can you say, here is this artwork that the people at the time thought was completely incomprehensible, totally morally worthless, if not downright offensive to our sensibilities, 
And now it is hanging on every dorm room. It is recognized to be one of the most obviously meritorious periods in artistic history. How else do you explain the phenomenon of Impressionism going from the most reviled and terrible art form in the history of human experience to one of the most widely celebrated and widely appreciated art movements in the history of human experience. We need to recognize that Tolstoy is to some degree dead wrong here. But we also need to recognize why Tolstoy says what he says, how these art movements do align with one another. And again, that artificiality is what I want to emphasize here. If anything, I think that we're actually dealing with apples and oranges where Tolstoy is seeing only oranges to his own apples. He sees Impressionism as being a part of a greater problem in art, that all of this art is being elitist, that it is deliberately obscure, that it is artificial in some sense. And while Impressionism is a bad example of that, because again, we so widely accept this and understand it and no longer see any problem with interpreting it, perhaps we should turn our attention to some of the other art forms that Tolstoy points out here. So take, for example, his criticism of Beethoven. Early Beethoven, it doesn't seem like Tolstoy has any problem with. But Tolstoy specifically goes out of his way to single out the Ninth Symphony and criticize it as being a perfect example of this artificial and therefore totally insincere kind of art. And once again, you might be tempted to say, but Professor Kozlowski, the Ninth Symphony is considered one of the greatest symphonies ever produced. Certainly Tolstoy is, here, is wrong here as well. Notice, though, that Tolstoy has a better justification than he does for Impressionism. His argument here is that Beethoven didn't know what he was composing. That at this point, Beethoven was so deaf that his art was composed entirely artificially. That he couldn't hear it, and therefore couldn't appreciate it, and therefore was just working on some sort of system. Working on some sort of standard that was secondary to the actual emotion that he, Beethoven, felt, and therefore wasn't communicating properly. Now, there's an argument to be made here, for sure. But I want to single out that argument, that idea that Beethoven isn't doing art right because he isn't following his own instincts so much as his own understanding of intellectually of what art is supposed to be. Now, honestly, I think the Ninth Symphony is a bad example here. So it's convenient that we also get another example later on that he singles out this one sonata, Op 101, we'll talk about it in its own time, maybe go listen to that sonata while, you know, we have a break here. But, if anything, Tolstoy criticizes Beethoven for something that Beethoven is actually correcting here in the Ninth Symphony. Like, it's actually pretty famous that some of the sopranos and some of the arias that are presented in uh Beethoven's Ninth Symphony are actually super hard to perform because they are written at such a high register that most even sopranos can't sing that high. But Beethoven specifically composed this symphony while he was going deaf and while those high notes were the only things he still could hear. So in some sense, the Ninth Symphony is actually a register above most of Beethoven's other symphonies, specifically because he was trying to communicate something that he could in fact actually hear and appreciate. 
um, Beethoven artificially built it for his own broken hearing in some sense. And incidentally, or accidentally, or perhaps because of this, we appreciate it to this day. Maybe it is too high. Maybe it is broken high. Maybe it is, as Tolstoy would probably criticize, something that causes more pain, more suffering, more difficulty for the people who are actually trying to perform the damn thing, in the same way that he was criticizing the, you know, here comes the bride part of the rehearsal that he observed. On that, I'll absolutely give him credit. But I think he's dead wrong about Beethoven misunderstood or trying to communicate something that he didn't actually feel. In fact, this seems to be a pretty good example of Beethoven foregoing artistic convention for the sake of expressing something that was, in fact, personally meaningful to him, and therefore, honestly, falls right under the mantle of what Tolstoy is talking about here. It is, by that logic, religious art, especially if you consider that this is an adaptation of Schiller's Ode to Joy, which is itself a peasant drinking song, like it's this whole thing. I don't want to get too deep into it. But the idea that there is an artificiality to it, that's what I want to sort of zero in on. And there's nothing more clear here than what Tolstoy has to say about the other writers of his time. Again, Baudelaire, Verlaine, Mallarmé, especially these French poets, this is what Tolstoy is the most mad about, this is what he is most clearly mad about, and where his objections are the most obvious and have the fewest caveats. Part of that may be, though, because I just don't understand Baudelaire and Mallarmé the way that I understand the Impressionists and the way that I understand Beethoven. So on the one hand, let me put that caveat up front. I am not a scholar of 19th century French poetry. But let me also emphasize right here at the outset Neither is anyone else. I mean, there are. There are, in fact, people who love this stuff. And I want to, you know, give them credit where credit is due. But when you say Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, this is an artwork that virtually everyone who is even the most remotely familiar with, like, the language of composers in the 19th century is familiar with. This is one of the most famous symphonies on the face of the planet. And even if you don't know that it's Beethoven's Ninth, you have probably heard the Ode to Joy in some form, in movies or in video games or anywhere in the popular consciousness because it is that important to our culture in this day. Likewise, as I said, the works of the Impressionists are all over the place. Even if you don't know that it's Van Gogh, you probably recognize the Starry Night. You probably recognize, you know, Monet's style, or you look at that one work of, like, you know, the Sunday afternoon pointillism painting. Like, you've seen it before, it's famous, it's out there, we still appreciate it to this day. But you can't say the same about Baudelaire. That's what I want to stress here. If Tolstoy is dead wrong about the Impressionists, and dead wrong about Beethoven's Ninth, he may have a point here when we're talking about the French. And that may just be my lack of appreciation for this particular period in art history. I am trying. Like, I've been reading Mallarmé all week and trying to wrap my head around it, and I'm starting to see what I think Derrida is into. We'll probably, like, have to reassess Mallarmé, and I do want to, like, stand up for his, his merits here. But at the same time, I totally see what Tolstoy is talking about here with Baudelaire, Mallarmé, etc. These are artists who have, as part of their artistic expression, said obscurity is a virtue, not a bug. And Tolstoy quotes them as saying that. 
points to Baudelaire and says that his artistic philosophy is rooted in the fact that this poetry is supposed to present a puzzle, that it is supposed to be totally incomprehensible to certain people. And on that front, I will totally give Tolstoy the benefit of the doubt here. Because I'm trying to read these translations. Heck, I even know enough French to be able to read it in the original for most of these poems, and I'm not getting much of anything here. And when I do, like Tolstoy, I recognize that it is often rooted in either something purely experiential, which we'll talk about, or something that is sort of grossly sexual or even sort of perniciously ironic in some sense. Take, for example, the one Baudelaire poem, or prose poem, I guess, that he talks about here, uh, Le Galant Tireur. Um, I'm not sure if this is actually Baudelaire. I think it's Baudelaire. The context. Yeah, this is Baudelaire. Um, so let's look at Le Galant Tireur. Um, we do get a translation, at least in Elmer Maud's version. Fortunately, Appendix 1 and 2, for that matter, are all just hardcore translations. Um, of all of the poems that Tolstoy is grumpy about. Like, I did in fact read all of Appendix 1, not all of Appendix 3, because that's where Tolstoy's like, here are a bunch of other writers! I'm like, no, we're not going there. If you're not going to use it as an example, then I'm not going to talk about it in my lecture either. Um, Le Galant Tireur, otherwise known as The Gallant Marksman. As the carriage was passing through the forest, he ordered it to be stopped near a shooting gallery, saying that he wished to shoot off a few bullets to kill time. To kill this monster, is it not one the most ordinary and the most legitimate occupation of everyone? And he gallantly offered his arm to his dear, delicious, and execrable wife, that mysterious woman to whom he owed so much pleasure, so much pain, and perhaps also a large part of his genius. Several bullets struck far from the intended mark. One even penetrated the ceiling. And as the charming creature laughed wildly, mocking her husband's awkwardness, he turned abruptly towards her and said, Notice that doll there on the right with the haughty mien and her nose in the air? Well, dear angel, I imagine to myself that it is you! And he closed his eyes and pulled the trigger. The doll was neatly decapitated. Then, bowing towards his dear one, his delightful, execrable wife, his inevitable, pitiless muse, and kissing her hand respectfully, he added, Ah, my dear angel, how I thank you for my skill. Okay. On the one hand, Tolstoy seems to think that this is incomprehensible. And I suspect that that means that Tolstoy is looking for something that just plain isn't here. Baudelaire is willing to limit his perspective to a very specific, very passing kind of moment. There's no big concept here, there's no giant overarching theme to Le Galant Tireur, or if there is, it's a fairly small and petty one. Like, instead we are just getting a slice of life shot of how the world works. Here is just this one moment in the lives of these two people, that's it. And I think Tolstoy is looking for some sort of eternal deep meaning that just isn't there. And I think that's kind of a fixture of Baudelaire's poetry, especially as Tolstoy is presenting it here. You'll notice that Baudelaire is frequently talking about how he loves the clouds because they are passing, transitory, because they disappear quickly. Again, we'll come back to that. Um, but over our, overall, I think Tolstoy is subjecting this poem to a moral standard that just doesn't actually exist here. Baudelaire isn't trying to say something important. He is trying to say something small, petty, and maybe a little bit mean. And the smallness and pettiness Tolstoy is upset about, and I'm not sure he's right to be upset about it. You can have good, small, petty poetry in some sense. I'm not sure if we should be so critical on that front.
But insofar as Baudelaire is mean, yeah, I'm pissed too. Notice the way his wife is described. As being delightful, but also execrable. As being haughty and disgusting in that sense. And the relationship between these two, as it is portrayed by Baudelaire, is meant to sort of be mean and also funny. And I'm not feeling it. Like, there's something apart me, uh, there's some part of me that is also, like Tolstoy, grossed out by Baudelaire's depiction of the wife in this little tiny prose story. But moreover, this is not just a one and done. This is not just, you know, a feature of Baudelaire's art. Yes, he's like this with everyone. On some sense, Baudelaire has repeatedly, over the poems that Tolstoy has quoted, and we see it in Mallarmé as well, treated women as though they are entirely just objects to be passed around and not even very nice objects. Like, it was one thing for us to have the romantics with their, with like Goethe's sort of celebration of Margareta as being pure and motherly and wonderful and this sort of like center of all the feminine virtues. You want to criticize that as being misogynistic because it is objectifying women. Be my guest. It's there, but at least we're saying nice things. At least we're holding this person up on a pedestal. Here instead we have the pedestal, and on the pedestal is crap. Baudelaire is not just celebrating women as object, he is celebrating women as object that's also kind of mean-spirited and rotten and lousy. Like, it's not even the man's perspective that he's expressing, it's the narrator, execrable wife. That grosses me out. And just as in the passage that uh, Tolstoy includes in the second appendix of Mallarmé's Divigations, which I have read in the original at this point, um, The Future Phenomenon, as much as I am moved by Mallarmé's description of the sort of pale, featureless world and this, you know, empty, disblasted place where the, the trees are covered in dust and not like the dust kicked up by travelers, you know, this sort of post-apocalyptic vision of the world, it is in fact haunting. I do find it uncomfortable when Mallarmé descends into describing this random naked woman who apparently represents the Earth in that respect. Yes, I'll grant the connections. Yes, again, we'll talk about what Baudelaire and Marlarmé might be doing here. But the obsession with the female form is something that Tolstoy identifies here, criticizes for being fundamentally sexual, and therefore, again, in line with that, like, beauty and lust and lack of resistance to pleasure, something that is fundamentally against the religious spirit of the age, that I so totally see here. The question then becomes, is smallness and pettiness a disqualification for good art? Because that's kind of what Tolstoy is doing. He is admittedly lumping together a lot of discordant ideas and things and philosophies. I think that's what is so problematic about here in chapter 12. The same criticisms that Tolstoy levels at Baudelaire are leveled at Impressionism, when for Baudelaire, yeah, they're probably legitimate and are certainly a, a legitimate criticism to bring against him, i.e. that poetry should be deliberately obscure, undermines the democratic goals of art, that being petty and mean and small undermines the efforts to sort of communicate great truths, and definitely his attitude towards women is problematic and potentially objectifying, catering to a supposedly refined, palatable taste that basically just boils down to, I like looking at pictures of naked ladies. That is a different criticism than Impressionism is also deliberately obscure when a hundred years down the road clearly it isn't. 
he is assuming that it is this one central set of principles, obscurity, smallness, and meanness, which define all of these artworks, where I think they can only be leveled at a few. He is right to criticize the French poets for this. He is wrong to criticize the French painters for this. He is wrong to criticize Beethoven for this. But I do want to get at those principles. Is it wrong for art to be petty and small? Because on some level, that is, in fact, what's underlying the Impressionistic perspective, though we usually refer to it in a different way. Where Baudelaire is sort of celebrating and talking about these petty, small interactions, something that only exists between these two people at this particular time, doesn't express any internal truths, doesn't encourage us to see the world from either of their perspectives, doesn't even encourage us to you know, understand human behavior in a different light. No, we are meant to look at and laugh at these people who are kind of small and kind of terrible and kind of awful without any you know, qualification or moral instruction, just here it is, go. Impressionism is, to some degree, doing the same. Just as Romanticism celebrated the personal experience, we have all of these works of art that are confessional or autobiographical. These, you know, we are sort of narrowing our perspective to look at the perspective or the attitudes and ideas of individual people rather than big sweeping ideas. So the Impressionists are emphasizing what is the way that the world looks to me or to us rather than what is the eternal reality underlying that appearance. The Impressionists, like Baudelaire and like many of these late 19th century artists, are in fact appreciating how the world looks, the experiential dimension of art and literature and truth. Where Tolstoy finds that offensive, he wants the truth, not the appearance. Baudelaire is celebrating appearance. And... We need to appreciate and recognize that Tolstoy is criticizing this and has a pretty good reason to criticize this. Art is for bringing people together. Art is for communicating great truths. If we are not doing that, then this art is broken. But I disagree. I think that there is a place for art that is small, for art that celebrates transitory beauty, appearance, superficiality. I am willing to grant the possibility of that. And what's more, I am willing to grant that that itself can be something true and meaningful, and that is why I am willing to excuse it. Baudelaire's Le Galanteur, I don't think, is good art. I think it's mean. I think it's small. I think it is small-minded. I don't think it is, like beneficial for me to have read it. I don't feel wiser for having read it. I don't feel edified or more moral. I just see a nasty little man making fun of other nasty little people. And I think that's kind of lousy. If you held this up to my own subjective standards of art, I would reject it. Not because it is not communicating religion, but because, as Tolstoy said in On Art, it isn't bringing people together. It's tearing them apart. It's encouraging us to make fun of people and to be less sympathetic rather than more. I'm willing to criticize it on those grounds. But I am also willing to say that there is beauty in celebrating a cloud. I am willing to say that there is a worthwhile effort to understand that the particular way that this light falls on this haystack at this moment in history is in fact something beautiful and worthwhile even if it was fleeting and momentary. 
and I am glad that Monet caught it when he did. He has taken something that was transitory and superficial and turned it into something meaningful and eternal. I can get behind that. Tolstoy can't. And I can't tell if that's misunderstanding, or the narrowness of his perspective, or if he is getting at something that I'm just missing and not appreciating. But I do want to stress this. It is a weird position for me to be in, as your professor here talked about the ethics of literature, talking about Tolstoy criticizing other artists. Because on the one hand, it is my job to defend Tolstoy's position. But on the other hand, it is my job to defend those French artists' positions and to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I don't think Tolstoy is. I think Tolstoy is unnecessarily harsh on these writers, though I don't think he's necessarily wrong for all that. I think Baudelaire is kind of a lousy artist. I haven't read anything by him that has moved me or inspired me to look at art differently, despite his, you know, what we see of his philosophy here. And what I am worried about is that that's because I'm not giving Baudelaire the benefit of the doubt, and I am reading him only through the lens of Tolstoy. Maybe I need to spend more time with Baudelaire. But I don't want to spend more time with Baudelaire. I don't think it is worth my time. I don't see any evidence in any of what Tolstoy is presenting to us here, as well as what I've found of Baudelaire in my own research, to indicate that Baudelaire has anything but a small-minded and fairly narrow perspective on art. On one hand, I am willing to entertain the possibility, at least here at the early part of this lecture series, that yes, there are some virtues of art that the elite are able to appreciate that we cannot. I am willing to allow that that is possible. If only because there have been moments where I've looked at a work of art and said, and eh, this is garbage, thrown it out, and then somebody told me, did you see this part of it? And I was like, wait, no, I didn't see that part. Let me go back. And suddenly I appreciated it. Honestly, I felt this way about Tolkien. The first time I read The Fellowship of the Ring, I thought it was a slog. I hated it. It took me months to get through it. But now I appreciate the world that Tolkien is building there. Now that I see the entire picture, now that I've been trained to understand what is virtuous and impressive about Tolkien, yeah, I can see it. And I am glad that I can see it. I think it does enrich my life in a way that it didn't before I understood this. But at the same time, if somebody comes to me and says, yeah, I tried to read The Lord of the Rings and I got stuck on page 17 when they were at Tom Bombadil's house, I'm like, yeah, I get that. I totally get that. On the one hand, I think that Tolstoy is right, and that if we do cut out parts of our audience, if we do deliberately make our art difficult to approach and to appreciate, we are doing a disservice both to our art and to the people who could potentially be appreciating it. And I think that Tolkien, whether intentionally or inadvertently, does that when he cuts people off from appreciating the Fellowship of the Ring by making it so damn boring for so long. But at the same time, I am willing to allow for the possibility that some art out there has a merit that needs to be sort of understood to be appreciated. If Tolstoy is criticizing Dante and Shakespeare, I, at the end of the day, am going to side with Dante and Shakespeare over Tolstoy. I love Anna Karenina, but at the end of the day, I think Tolstoy is looking at art pretty narrowly here and is making more mistakes than I'm comfortable with. I like Shakespeare, and not just because I'm trained to read Shakespeare. I liked Shakespeare before it was cool to like Shakespeare. I liked Romeo and Juliet when I read it for the first time in my freshman year in high school. 
I can get behind this. I can see the beauty of what he is doing. And if Tolstoy says that the only way that we can appreciate it is through this elaborate scholarly education, he may not be wrong, but it may be worth it. Baudelaire, though? No. I'm not getting the same feeling here. And I want to stress this. Because this is going to be a division that we bump into frequently in the course of these lectures. It's not just going to be Tolstoy. This idea that art can be accessible to the many or accessible to the few, and those few who breathe the rarefied air of certain artworks will appreciate them even better than the mass market populist work made for everybody, that's something that I struggle with, and it's something a lot of these writers are going to struggle with. Tolstoy is just the first glimpse of that. I think that Baudelaire lessens himself by making himself inaccessible in the same way that Tolkien lessens himself by making himself inaccessible in the same way that Joyce and Shakespeare are lessened by either the fact of their becoming inaccessible through, you know, Joyce's pretentiousness and elaborate, like, cloak-and-dagger games across Ulysses, or alternatively, the fact that in Shakespeare's own day, Shakespeare was much more accessible and readable than he is 400 years after the fact. In all of these situations, these artworks are, in some sense, elite, and elitist as a consequence. And to say, you haven't lived until you've read Shakespeare is itself a little bit elitist. But there are some places where you can dig and find gold, and there are some places where you dig and find crap. And I think Baudelaire is being dug and found crap. Mallarmé, though, I'm withholding my judgment, because, again, I've got at least one artist who is arguing pretty strongly for him, and as I'm reading divigations, I'm starting to learn what his patterns are, and, I'm, and we're letting the jury sit out on this one. At the end of the day, I think Mallarmé is doing a lot of the same stuff that Baudelaire is. I think he is being deliberately obfuscating, but I also think that Mallarmé is, at the end of the day, also touching something. Like, his understanding of the way that language works is different from the way that Baudelaire is experimenting with language, where Baudelaire is clearly going out of his way in some of these poems to just celebrate transitory things and nothing more, or even to, like, represent people as being small, petty, mean, lousy, and rotten. Mallarmé, I think, is doing that to other purposes. I think he may have a more complicated agenda than either Tolstoy or, or I can appreciate at this point. I'm letting the jury sit out. But I will be willing to condemn, here and now, both Baudelaire and Mallarmé for cutting people off, for violating Tolstoy's democratic agenda. I think that this is a good standard for judging art. It's just not the only one. So on, at the end of the day, because we have already gone way too long for this lecture, let me talk about that perversion and what we should be taking away here. On the one hand, we should recognize what Tolstoy is ultimately trying to tell us, that there is virtue to mass appeal, to trying to appeal to everyone's democratic sentiments, and ideally to sort of fostering that unity among people and that sympathy among people that the work of Baudelaire and arguably Mallarmé is very much missing. Something that Beethoven and the Impressionists are in fact doing if Tolstoy bothered to learn that about them and bothered to sort of hear them out in some sense. Um, but, again, Tolstoy needs a more robust system. Just as he was quick to condemn Chekhov's darling story for being amoral, 
Um, even though the characters were sympathetic, I think that was in fact Chekhov's intention and we should give him the benefit of the doubt there. Thus, Tolstoy's philosophy of art is lacking something. And I hope to be able to explore that even more deeply in our next discussion. But I think the principle, the underlying principle, this religious sentiment, I think there's merit there. And I think we need to explore it more in order to properly understand it better. Um, so that said, next time we're going to finish What is Art. We're going to read the back half. We're going to look at his thoughts on his own work, on Dostoevsky. We're going to look at him watching Wagner. We're going to see him pick on some more people and also defend his own principles. Hopefully we'll get an even more clear idea what he means by this religious experience. Hopefully we'll be able to see exactly what he's getting at and get whatever narrow perspective he has on art. We'll be able to reveal it more clearly. Whether or not we agree with it, we'll talk about that later. Um, to do that, again, obviously read the second half of What is Art, our supplementary reading for next week. I've already skimmed a little and probably, like, spoiled half of it. Um, I do want us to be familiar with Goethe's Faust, because we are going to talk about it more, and we are going to talk about how Goethe both fails and succeeds to achieve these democratic aims that Tolstoy is talking about, as well as read some Shakespeare. I'd recommend Hamlet. It's probably the one I'm most familiar with and will probably be my go-to for talking about Shakespeare and whether or not he is accessible in our day and age. Listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony if you get the chance, um, because again, we'll be talking about it more, as well as that Sonata, Op 101. Um, if you search for it, you should be able to track it down. It is a long piano sonata, I should mention, at least it's the version that I tracked it, but whatever. Uh, give it a listen, or at least listen to some of it. Um, if you can, check out Pushkin's Evgeny Onogin. Um, it is his masterwork of poetry, and it is held up by Tolstoy to be, in fact, moral art. Uh, here in the second half of the text, and I probably will want to talk about it because this is a huge cultural touchstone for Tolstoy and a huge cultural touchstone for the entire Russian literary scene. Plus, I find it kind of fascinating because it violates some of Tolstoy's rules, and yet he holds it up anyway, which is unusual, especially because greater artists like Dante and Shakespeare are definitely getting the shaft. Though, again, Pushkin, we'll talk about it. Um, and then lastly, because Tolstoy does in fact bring it up, try reading both God Sees the Truth But Waits and A Prisoner of the Caucasus if you haven't already, because Tolstoy not only brings those two up, but specifically points them toward two different sort of prongs of his philosophy here, which hopefully will illuminate much better what he's trying to say if we know both those stories and the context that he puts them in. Um, if you can, maybe also take a stab at Nietzsche. Uh, his aesthetics are all over his writings because that's just how Nietzsche works. It's kind of a pain in the butt to recommend stuff. Um, I would recommend Thus Spake Zarathustra because that's kind of where all of his ideas congregate, plus the first part of it largely deals with that distinction between the Ubermensch and the last man, like who are the people who properly appreciate the world and good art versus who are the people who have poor taste and should be disregarded. That is actually right at the front of Thus Spake Zarathustra and is therefore pretty easy to read. Um, if you are going to go further, maybe Beyond Good and Evil would be helpful because that is sort of the distillation of a lot of, of Nietzsche's thoughts about a lot of things, but art especially. Um, but assuming that you can't get to any of that, that's fine. Um, don't worry about Nietzsche especially. Like We'll probably talk about and illuminate some of his ideas. Um, at any rate, it's been fun talking about Tolstoy, even if this was circuitous and complicated and messy, but you know what were we expecting? Um, next time we finish What is Art, I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want 
to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.